I'm always wanting my pieces to be not just sculptures, but but living creatures or living personalities in the sense that you feel the life of each person or animal. I work on things, but I work on many things at the same time. And more often than not, I put something aside and, and work on something else. So things can be sitting around for years and years before they're finally finished. I don't find myself limited by the preciousness of white marble, as a lot of people are here. Usually, when I'm at this stage of, of a kind of raw figure without any added color in it, 100% of the people who, who see it tell me, stop there, it's good enough, you don't need color. Absolutely everyone, no one ever says, yeah, add some color. But again, 90% of the people, after I do add color, say, oh, you did a good job, good for you. I like the idea of games and joking and kind of doing things unexpected, like you don't expect a, a sculpture to also be a ping pong table. It's not like I'm trying to make a joke, but they always end up a little bit humorous. And, and that's not that I'm trying to make it humorous, but I'm trying to create a character. And my characters, they're not dying and fighting. They're, they're standing and, and reacting with, with the viewer. So I keep working on something until, until it comes alive. And comes alive in my mind is that these figures have a life of their own. Hi, this is Materially Speaking, where artists tell their stories through the materials they choose. We're 30 miles north of Pisa and 15 miles south of the marble mountains of Carrara, near a town called Pietrasanta, nicknamed Little Athens because of its tradition for carving marble. Today I'm with Neil Barab, a Californian artist who, together with two partners, set up Studio Pescarella in an old marble sawyard. As I try to park without blocking lorries from entering the adjacent marble factory, I almost run over a noisy chicken coop. Pescarella has an enormous yard dotted with the equipment they share. Trucks with a long arm and sling to lift the stone, trolleys to move it around, compressors to power the tools and blow off the dust. Around the huge industrial building are outdoor workspaces with three sides of corrugated iron and a roof. I love the old wooden cavaletti or little horses on which the artists place their sculptures to work them. The older the cavaletti, the more they are scarred by cuts. Inside the building, high windows throw light down on Neil's space, packed with his personaggi, or characters, carved from brightly coloured stone, some of them also painted. They're already on plinths for his exhibition in a few days. My name is Neil Barab. I come from California. I grew up in Los Angeles and then went to school and lived in Santa Cruz before coming here. So that's just south of San Francisco. My work is variously influenced by Mexican pre-Columbian art, art from the Cyclades, African art, and then into animation, especially Japanese anime, Miyazaki, 
Totoro, even cartoons and, and popular films. Now I'm um, preparing for a show in Pietrasanta, where I've lived and worked for more than 30 years. Recently I did something for the city of Pietrasanta. When you do something on the streets or, or roundabouts of Pietrasanta, becomes included in what they call the Parco Internazionale di Scultura Contemporanea Pietrasanta, or something like that, the International Contemporary Sculpture Park. It's, it's nice to do a show in Pietrasanta. Though I've been here all this time, I haven't done a, a personal show here. So it's good to let people see what I'm doing. I feel like right now I'm into something that's really personal, and I'm really having fun with it. I'm in this period of work where it just flows. I'm working on this series, I call it personaggi or personalities, characters, and they're persons or animals made up of different kinds of marble and different colors of marble, and often I'll add paint to it also. Around the world, when you encounter Carrara marble, it's prestigious. The Carrara marble is the white marble that comes from here. It's the reason why we're all here. When you get here, you discover there's Carrara marble and then there's Carrara marble. The, the marble that's mostly known around the world here, they say it's ordinario, ordinary marble. And what's really precious is statuario, which is more white and more translucent. And of course, the Carrara marble sets the norm for the best quality marble because it has very small crystals that are hard enough to hold an edge, but not too hard to work. What I appreciate about being here is the other marble that's imported from all over the world. I'm able to use pink Portuguese marble, green verde ming, a black fossil stone from Morocco from the Atlas Mountains, which is black with white fossils flowing through, which kind of looks like a night sky with comets shooting through the, the sky. Various kinds of travertine marble. Travertine means it has holes in it, um, starting with Roman travertine, which a lot of the Colosseum was made of in Rome, and going on to uh, travertino noce, which is kind of brown. I have a, a pinkish, Russian travertine, I have a yellow Persian travertine, and then there's a, a quarry not far south of uh, Siena that, that has a lot of travertine of, of different colors that I've started exploring. So I'm putting different stones together, different degrees of polish, maybe some parts of it might be high polished, not too much though, just to give highlights, other parts have contrasting textures with the travertine. I often spray paint the entire travertine form and then sand it down again, leaving color in the, in the holes of the travertine. In Los Angeles and California, I, I, I guess you could say I was influenced by the Bay Area funk movement, which was going on at the same time just as pop and beyond, even when a lot of minimalism was going in, there was a lot of kind of humorous, painterly, uh, sculptural work going on. Robert Arneson, if you knew him, did a famous portrait of George Moscone after Moscone was assassinated with Harvey Milk in, in City Hall, and the city didn't accept his sculpture because it wasn't heroic enough of a monument. It was a bit sarcastic. And so if you had to look for where my work comes from, it's a combination of that California 
funk, uh, general California aesthetic, possibly animation and pre-Columbian and Aboriginal art. So did you have a formal art training? In the American sense, which was very informal. The American bachelor's degree is a four-year degree, but at least two years of it are spent studying general subjects. So I had never meant to be an artist. I kind of fell into it. It's interesting, John Greer wrote an essay for me um, for the last show I had at uh, Kunstfabrik Gross-Sigharts in Austria. And as we discussed my uh, upbringing, he hit on something that I hadn't thought of that affects my work, which is that my father worked for Mattel Toy Company. And in fact, we moved from Chicago to Los Angeles in 1960 because he got this job with Mattel, 1959 actually. Um, In fact, you can see my father on, on the British show, The 100 Best Toys that comes on Christmas every year as he talks about the formation of Barbie, because he was in on that at the beginning. So we, as kids, we used to go into the testing room, which would be a a mirrored room that they would watch us choosing which toys to play with. And and we would go into a room full of toys and play with certain things. And the family lore is that we always played with the wrong toys. They would have these new things that they hoped would be popular. And and so you bring a kid in and and see what's going on. Who's your favorite? You know, they had a lot of toys then which wouldn't be allowed now for safety reasons. I remember there was a, um, what was it called? There was one where you kind of poured this liquid goop into molds and then you had a little machine that heated it up and, and then they would be kind of hard rubber. That was that was a, a favorite. There was another one called Vacuform where you kind of take a sheet of plastic and it melts over a form and then you cut it out. Uh, those were those were some of the ones I remember. I went back the first time in Santa Cruz and I started studying politics, having already been involved in some politics, some electoral campaigns in in California. Tom Hayden for Senate. Tom was married to Jane Fonda. He had been one of the major anti-war organizers, founder of SDS. I think he was the first big name from the radical 60s to try and get elected. He didn't get elected, but it was a good campaign. That led me into the United Farm Workers, where Cesar Chavez was the leader. And I worked for a month on an electoral campaign in California. So then by the time I got to Santa Cruz, I thought, well, I'll study politics. At least that's when you do something. But politics on an academic level doesn't really do anything either. They're, they're still talking about after the revolution, this is what our perfect state will look like. And so I again got disillusioned, dropped out of that worked for a few years and then just thought I'd go back to university just because they had a foundry class, a bronze foundry class, and a welded sculpture class. So I thought I'd learn how to weld, make some sculpture, take the bronze class. I was obviously interested, but I don't know where that interest came from. I wasn't thinking about being an artist, but I took these classes and never really left the classroom. I was always in the studio late at night. Even then, if you look back on who was in the studio in the after hours, those are the people who are still artists now. I did a commission for the city of Santa Cruz, which is still there. 
They put it on a kind of back street because they didn't want it on the main street, but it turned out they built the art museum right in front of the sculpture. So it, I ended up with a sculpture that was in front of the local art museum and which survived a big earthquake in 1989. The building behind it kind of completely crumbled, but my sculpture's still standing there pristine because I know that when you have a public sculpture, you've got to design it for a gang of feral youth trying to pull it down. So I designed it for that, and it's still there. It was five years after I graduated, I decided to go to Pietrasanta, which I had heard about from one of my professors, Jack Zajac, who had been in Italy since 1948, where he won the Prix de Rome for painting and ended up being more known for his sculptures and working in Pietrasanta. So he sent me here with a list of people I could look up, one of whom was uh, Yvonne Davidson. Yvonne was a local woman who married an American soldier from the war. And the soldiers who passed through here in the summer and winter of 1944 were, were first black soldiers, a, a segregated black regiment, and then the Japanese-American Nisi soldiers. Yvonne married Frank Davidson, who was an officer in, in the black regiment, and they ended up coming back to Pietrasanta, where Frank was always known as the American guy. So Yvonne became kind of a liaison between the foreign sculptor community and the local community because she spoke English. Um, she would help people find places to live and interpret and things. So when I, when I walked into town and, and knocked on Ivane's door, she thought a little bit and took me up to her balcony and pointed up the mountain and said, you see that little castle there? Would you like to live there? And I said, yeah, I think I would. And, and it turns out that she was friends of the old aristocracy of Pietrasanta, who owned still the little fortino, the little fort in the middle of the wall that surrounds Pietrasanta. So I lived there for my first two years which was quite amazing because it was made as a watchtower. So it had a view up and down the coast and looked straight down into the Piazza of Pietrasanta, where we know that Michelangelo had lived for two years when he was quarrying marble for the Medici. So I always had a sense that at some point he would have walked up the hill to get a view out my bedroom window. So I always had this sense that Michelangelo had been there looking out the window, probably with a glass of wine in his hand, just like I did every day after work. What is it about the area that makes it? You know, you came because somebody told you you should come. What, what did you find when you got here and, and what well, world is it? The cliche is that it's sculptor's paradise, but it's actually true. You don't have the distractions that one normally has when you have your studio near your home. You come here and you actually do nothing but carve marble. Your production level rises exponentially 
everything is easy here for, for a marble sculptor. Uh, the stone is, is easily available. Here, there's a rule that you never work on bad stone. So if there's a crack in it or, or it's just not good quality, you just don't work on it because there's always better stone around for a good price. You also are able to take risks when you're making sculpture because if it breaks or if it doesn't work out, then you put it aside and start something else. And the freedom to do that helps your work. In Pietrasanta itself, even in the winter, there's probably hundreds of sculptors living here. And over the course of the year, I'd say thousands of stone sculptors pass through town. So when you meet people, generally, they're a stone sculptor. The community is already here. Although we're aging our community, we're, we're all well past 50 now, and there's not as many youth. Now you don't really see young people coming here from the art Why is that? I believe it's because it's too expensive. But it also has to do with how the nature of contemporary art has changed because we're, by definition, object makers. And, and contemporary art now is very much more situational, site-specific, and conceptual. So, shall we talk a little about Pescarella while we're waiting for the others? Yeah. Well, Pescarella started in 2002 when uh, J.S. Schurk, Lotte, Tunker, and I, we ended up here. We bought the space and invested in setting it up with the idea of having enough people working that it would just keep the place going. We're not, we're not making a profit on it, but we, we keep it going. Each sculptor has their own space and we have some indoor space for exhibiting our work. Um, being that Jaya's half Swiss and Lotte's German, uh, we're very well organized. We made sure we had showers, a changing room, a kitchen that works. Um, we're kind of very strict with uh, how you behave. Everything's gotta be cleaned up. Uh, it's important that, that people don't bother us when we're working. We're sculptors first and we give the space. And if you can't work by yourself with your own tools, then this isn't the place for you. As, as Pietro Santa has gotten more popular, it's the standard gentrification thing that goes on around the world. The artists are there, so people move in, so the artists have to move out. We're still in the comune of Pietro Santa, but we're out in an industrial area where we don't bother anyone. We welcome sculptors. Uh, people find us and hear about us. We're usually willing to allow people we don't know come in and work. And what's the language spoken here? What we have here is, is one Italian, Sauro Lorenzoni, who, who is a retired artigiano. Sauro worked for the Enro Company, which was the, the first major studio to invite modern sculptors in. So Sauro, as a youth, worked for Henry Moore and Marino Marini and, and a lot of people. And being around 80 now, he has a lot of history and technique behind him. So with Sauro, we speak Italian. With uh, our Korean member, uh, Kim Sung-il, we speak Italian. Uh, everybody else speaks English, or there's a, a lot of German or Swiss people. Christine's from France. So across the lunch table, there's quite often three languages. And do you eat together every day? We do. We shut the machines down from 12.30 to 1.30 and we eat together. And even now people know in town that we always have lunch at that time and they're always welcome to stop by and have lunch with us. So we do get a lot of guests at lunchtime. Great. Well, maybe we should go at this I think point. We should eat. 
you guys introduce yourselves? To I'm Sarah. Hi. Sarah. I'm Simone. Simone. Nice hi. to meet you. Michael. Michael. Hi, Michael. So do you work here all year round, part of the year? No, I'm here for uh, two months. First time. How is it? It's fantastic. <laughs> it's fantastic. I'm a, I live in New Zealand and we don't have any marble there. Now for me here, that's it, like paradise, having all that choice, all those colors and oh, it's like a sweetie shop. Oh yeah. <laughs> <Can't go. laughs> so do you have a recipe for your crustaceans? No, but I, I'm always criticizing Douglas about his crust, so we'll see whether I did it well or not. <laughs> <laughs> Shall I get coffee or do we have it after? Yeah, pour the coffee. Um. Douglas! You're late! Hi! <laughs> have you eaten lunch? Ooh. Good, there you go. There's lunch. Ooh. Great. I was just caught up in my work, I didn't know what time it was. Christina. Ciao. Ciao. This Hello. is Sarah. Hi. Christine. Hello. Hi. There's enough food for you if you like. Oh, thank you. We're having dessert. Can I take these uh, glasses? Oh, yes. oh dear, you've got bandages. Oh, it's just protection. Pastry's very good. I was <laughs> Not telling saying her, anything bad about yours, Douglas. About, see, you haven't read. You need to, did I give you a, a I joy of cooking? I never read did recipes. I, you need to read about. That's why I can't. That's why. No, can't in Joy of Cooking, they have two pages about pastry crust, and you need to read that. <laughs> I read it years no, ago. No, no. Oh, You're yes. worse than a married couple. I, I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> so that was pre-protection against an accident, not that you've had an accident. No, I, instead of wearing a glove, just to protect my knuckles. Sure. I'm banging them all morning. So wrap. After how many because hours I, because did you think actually, of that? <laughs> No, because they bleed. If they bleed on this stone, if I don't see that blood, it will sink in the white stone and it won't come out. Well, but then people might be very touched. Yes. Maybe you will. bled for the sculpture. Every piece of work has to You can't leave blood on a white stone. It's made with blood, tears, and sweat. And you could add pee, because if you have a big sculpture, most guys pee on their sculpture. They do not. Probably didn't hear Michael talk much, but he's a Brit. Oh, you're British. Yeah. So where are you from? Lincoln. Uh huh. Mm, first time over here as well. Is so, it? Um, it's coming to the end of three months here. Mm. How's it been? Absolutely loved it. Yeah. And yeah. um, what do you do at home? I do sculpture full time now. I worked on Lincoln Cathedral as a stone carver for 15 years. And what are you doing here? You're doing your own creative. Yeah, my own sculptural stuff. In, in marble or? In marble, yeah. That was the main reason for coming out, to okay. try the marble and really experiment with it. Is it the first time working marble? I've worked marble back in the UK, stuff that I've imported, but I've always been very careful with it and very timid with it because it's a precious material in the UK. It's not something you find. So coming out here was a chance just to have a really good go at marble and see what I could do with it, see what the material could do. It's interesting and for us watching Michael because most of us are self-taught 
we learned here and there. And so I saw Michael doing things with the machine, which were beyond the point where I usually say you have to leave the machine and do it by hand if you want to get a, a good organic curve, for instance. But he's skilled enough to be able to do it with the machine. So Jay and I have both come over to get private lessons on how exactly do you get so so far with the machine. That's really interesting. How long are you staying? Till the end of the month. Okay. So one more week to get. One more week. Yeah. It's time for Neil's show. Yeah. Hi, so we're in your show. How did you choose this place? Um, this is Sala di Grasse, G-R-A-S-C-E. It's a place where a lot of the artists in the community show. It's part of the cultural center in the center of town. I'd say most of the artists in town end up showing here. It's a nice space. It's all rustico stone walls, so the sculptures fit in here. Um, quite nicely. Yeah, it's a bit like a cellar, isn't it, really? Yeah. It's sort of got it's a... a cave or a cellar. I'm showing 15 pieces. I was quite attentive to show less, to see more. I think that each piece needs its own space. Douglas actually pointed out last night that it worked really well having these two big pieces almost as soon as you come in. Was that intentional? Mm -hmm. The two pieces are the heaviest pieces, so I didn't want to move them around, but I did have the sense that that's where they should go right at the beginning. Though they're already the biggest pieces, they're also unfinished. What we have are these yellow travertine heads with pink Russian travertine torsos, male and female. They're about a meter high each now, maybe a little less. In the end, they're going to be more than three meters high, and they'll be quite a domineering pair of perhaps guardian figures, um, entrance figures. Most of the ones that are, are human-ish, I want to be somewhere around our own, the viewer's eye level. There is a definite optimal height for everything, especially the dogs, big dog and little dog. I had always had on the ground, feeling that they had more of a real life if they were in a real space. But now I've put them up about two feet, 40 centimeters, on a piece of uh, white marble, and they're actually better like that. When I put the animals up high, they become sculptures at eye level. So you're looking into the dog's eyes, and, and the big dog, you're looking right through the, the hollow snout, which you otherwise wouldn't notice. And it also gives the positive aspect of bringing the smaller dog up a little closer to the viewer's eyesight and, and being a little more intimate. I think it certainly looks like a family. I feel nice. They certainly <laughs> get off those things and uh -huh. party. Yeah. They do look yeah. as though they yeah. do. Yeah. Can you describe, because it's a oral project, uh, some of the figures. Yeah, here. well, uh, have they got names? Big Dog and Little Dog are marble and olive wood. And the olive wood is taken from my own olive trees. I have 40 olive trees on a terraced hillside just a few kilometers from my studio. 
And when, when I'm doing what's called the potatura, or cutting the trees lower every couple of years, I'm always looking for bits that might end up being part of an interesting sculpture. If we go on to this other piece here, which I call Trav Femme, because it's a female travertine it's form. Beautiful. The hair is made out of all these crystals. If you imagine a, an underground cave with crystal formations, stalagmites, that's kind of what is happening in this stone. I just kind of saw this block in a stone yard one day, and in the middle of this cut block of yellow travertine was a big hole. And in this hole were a lot of these crystal formations. What we're looking at now is a head that's maybe 10 kilos, but I probably bought two tons of stone. So this has yellow travertine. It has Roman travertine as a kind of scarf floating in the wind, and it has a red Persian travertine as a torso, and it doesn't really need more color. Although if you look very closely up in the hair, I did paint some red into the holes of the hair. So here I have a, a marble ping pong table. I've done three of them. The first one was done out of one piece. I showed it in Firenze in 2007, Florence. Uh, this one here is made out of four pieces of marble, the net being a piece of yellow marble, the top being a piece of kind of olive-colored verde ming from China, the middle being what we call leopard stone, which is actually a marble that comes from Marmora in near Istanbul. Marmora, of course, being the Turkish word for marble. So I, this, this leopard stone is quite an interesting stone that I use a lot because it works really good with abstract form. Instead of the usual veins of marble going through the stone, it has tubes of pigment running through the stone. So if you cut it a certain way, it's spotted. And if you cut it another way, it's striped. So anyway, the middle bit here of this ping pong table is leopard stone. The bottom is pink Portuguese. There's a lot of pink Portuguese marble around here. It, it runs from very light, almost white, to very deep rose red. And in the area here, I was able to wander around hundreds of stone yards between here and Carrara until I find just the dark block that I needed for the stone. So the thing about the ping pong table is that it's small, it's, it's about a quarter of the size of a real ping pong table. But the reality is that you can really play ping pong on it. Once you get the measure of it, a good ping pong player, it takes about three minutes and then they stop hitting it hard and you realize you have to hit it on the table. You can still hit it hard, but you have to aim down. So once you're playing, you can get a really good volley going. And what you realize is that ping pong is much better played on stone than it is on the usual plywood. It has a beautiful, bounce to it. Much nicer than, than it would be on wood. Uh, Are you good? Do you win? Being my table, I have the home court advantage. If you look at the piece outside, I've made this piece with different travertine. It's an upside down figure, so at a little more than a meter high, you have this pair of boots, which are in what we call travertino noche, or nut-colored travertine. Below that, legs and hips in Russian travertine, which is a pink stone. And then below that, I have a, a belt of Persian travertine, and below that, I have some yellow travertine, which is a kind of torso, and it's kind of standing on its head. <laughs> Sono sul razzo, però la faccia no.
Sometimes we get lost in, in the technical and the, the different kinds of marble, but what that allows me to do is to choose among all these different colors and textures and abilities of the different stone to invoke different vocabularies and meanings. What happens with stone is that you kind of fall in love with the material. In, in fact, if you don't fall in love with it, then you don't keep doing it. But most of us, we have a real visceral love affair with stone. And so that's, that's the beginning of it. And then we develop our own artistic aesthetic and, and sentiments from the material. So thanks to Neil Barab. You can see his work on his website at neilbarab.art and follow him on Instagram, Neil Barab. For photographs of all the work discussed in this series, follow our Instagram or visit our website materiallyspeaking.com where you can join our mailing list to hear about upcoming episodes. Editorial thanks to Guy Dowsett. Thank you.